Today with our Back to Basics study through the book of Galatians. Uh, if you were here the last time I preached, you might remember that I gave an introduction to Galatians and basically said that what Paul is doing in the book of Galatians is writing about two key themes. The first theme is hidden, the nature of his apostleship and his authority. He had planted these churches in Galatia in about 44 to 46 AD, and roughly two years later there must have been some Judaizers that were saying, now his message is right, he's not preaching the gospel of Christ. And so Paul writes this letter first to address that, but then he also writes to first preach the gospel and then defend the true gospel and then give the implications of what that means. Today we're going to look at the second theme, which is that we need to understand that salvation and consequently our justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. So if you would please turn to Galatians 1, 6-9, I'll pray, and then we will move into this text. Father, we come before you again to hear from your word, and I just pray that as we hear your word, that your spirit would open our hearts and our ears to hear what you have to say for us. Lord, help us to understand what it is you're saying through your word to us this morning. Help us to hear it, and help us to live it out. Father, give you strength and the boldness to just proclaim your word this morning. In Holy Spirit, Take the word and do with it what you will. I ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Galatians 1, 6-9 I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the name in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel, Contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we said, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. As I said earlier, Paul most likely planted this church between 44 and 46 AD on his first missionary journey. That means that he wrote this letter, or scholars believe he wrote this letter in 48 AD. That's two years. The churches in Galatia had heard this message for two years, and they are already turning. And what they're turning from, if you see in the text, is they're not turning from a message. Did you catch that in verse 6? Paul doesn't say, I can't believe you're deserting my message. I can't believe you're deserting the gospel that I preached to you. You're not deserting me. You're not deserting my preaching. What does Paul say we're deserting? Him. We're deserting a person. We are des- they were deserting Christ. He says, I am, so, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. Literally, it means that they were turning away from or giving up on an agreement or a relationship. So this Galatian church was turning from and turning their back on Christ. So what does that mean? When you turn away from Christ, what what are you turning away from? When you turn to something else, I believe you're 
turning away from the work that Christ did for you on the cross, that did for us on the cross. In John 19, 28 through 30, we read of John's account of Jesus' death on the cross. In verse 30 of John 29, or John 19, Jesus says the phrase or the word, tetelestai. Anybody ever heard that phrase before? It's rendered in the English, it is finished. It is finished. Everything that needed to be accomplished on the cross for your salvation and for my salvation was accomplished by Christ. The cross of Christ satisfied the wrath of God on your behalf. It paid the debt that we owe for our sin, for breaking his law, and it provided the only way for us to be reconciled back to God. The cross of Christ was the innocent for the guilty. And in theology, it's called the penal substitutionary atonement. Now, if you've never heard that phrase, listen to this. Penal means there was a punishment that that needs to be enacted on God's creatures for breaking his law. This is nothing foreign to us. You go out and you rob a bank, the cops catch you, they're going to throw you in jail. That's the penal system. You break a law, there's a punishment. The Bible tells us that we are all guilty of breaking God's law. Romans 3.23, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of that sin, the punishment for that sin, is death. So that's the penal part. The next is substitutionary. So now we're at penal substitutionary. Substitutionary, to substitute something, is to take one thing in place of another. Christ was your substitute. He was my substitute. Christ went to the cross on your behalf. He went to the Christ of the cross on my behalf. This is Christ in place of you. Now you have atonement. So you have penal, the punishment, but substitutionary, Christ for you, atonement, the payment for your sins. That's what it means to atone for something. It means to give, to render, to give payment for something. Now Christ was innocent. Scripture teaches that he became sin. He who had no sin was made sin for us so that we may become the righteousness of God. Christ, the innocent, perfect Son of God, atoned for your sins, not his, because he had none. So in other words, for the Galatians and for us to turn or to reject or to desert Christ I means I believe it means you walk to the cross of Christ, you see Christ hanging on the cross in your place, taking the punishment for your sins, and you simply say, thanks, but no thanks. Thanks, but I'm going to do this on my own. I think there's another way. I think there's a better way. I don't need you. This is what it means to desert Christ, to turn from, to desert somebody. If you desert your kids, what do you do? You drop them off and you leave. I don't want you. I don't need you. Stay here. I'm gone. You walk out with a spouse. I'm done. I don't want anything. I don't need you. I'm done with this. I'm leaving. The Galatians are in danger, and I believe we're in danger of deserting Christ, walking away from Christ, if we begin to rest in anything other than Christ. So what were the Galatians in fear of? The Galatians were in danger 
of slipping into legalism. If you go to chapter 5, Paul writes, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now this wasn't just working through or going through the act of circumcision, it was relying on that act for your justification. That's what the Galatians were in fear of. And Paul says, if you do that, Christ is no advantage to you. You're turning your back on Christ. You're deserting Christ if you accept circumcision as justification for your sins. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the entire law. Since you're severed from Christ, you would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So that's the Galatians legalism. I don't think we struggle so much with that legalism. Maybe some of us do. I found a quote from a book of four different classes of legalism. The book is titled Putting the Truth to Work, The Theory and Practice of Biblical Application by Dan Doriano. Now, I did not read the book. The book came off of a blog post that I follow regularly and trust, so I am trusting the blogger that put this up to what he says, I read the quote, I agree with it, but I don't know what else Dan Gorioni says in that book. I'm pulling this quote out, because I like this quote. Dan Gorioni writes, class, class one legalists declare what one must do in order to obtain God's favor or salvation. The rich young ruler was a class one legalist. And I'm adding that I believe the Galatians were a class one legalist. They were class one legalists. What do I need to do in order to earn my salvation? That's a class one legalist. Anytime you say, what can I do? What do I need to do? How do I do this to gain that? That's a class one legalist. Class two legalists, this is a quote again, class two legalists declare what good deeds or spiritual disciplines one must perform to retain God's favor and salvation. This is me again. This is the person who may believe and understand that we are justified by faith alone in Christ, and that they are saved by faith, but then we fall into the lie that the retention of our salvation is based upon what we do for Christ. That at some point in time, if we're not meeting our spiritual disciplines that God is no longer looking at us in favor and he pulls back our salvation. Now here's my question for you to think about that if you give me a little bit of pushback. At what point are you no longer maintaining status quo? If you think that you're doing something to retain your salvation in Christ, do you know, can you know, when have you fallen? Is it that you've missed two Bible readings? Where's the, where's the line? When do you step past that line to where you've lost your salvation? Is it the, line, the same line for everybody? Is it different for you than it is for me? And how could you ever have assurance of your salvation at that point? Would you know when you fell? It's just questions for you to think if you find yourself in the class two legalist zone. Class three legalists love the law so much they create new laws. 
Laws not found in Scripture and require submission to them. The Pharisees who built fences around the law were class three legalists. This is the person that says, I can't believe you're a Christian and you do X. Or I can't believe you're a Christian if you don't do this. And whatever the this is. I can't believe you call yourself a Christian and you vote Republican or Democrat or Independent or you even vote at all. A class three legalist says, I can't believe you call yourself a Christian and you dress this way. Or you don't dress this way. Or you listen to this music and you don't listen to that music. Or you listen to music at all. This is a class three legalist. Now I'm not saying the Lord can't convict you of something that you're not allowed to do. You were in my Sunday school class several weeks ago and we went through Romans 14, I believe. I'm not at all saying there are things that as Christians we can't do. And I'm not saying that there are certain things that God has called you not to do where other people can. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I'm saying is we can't be like the Pharisees who put up fences around the law and keep people so far from the law to make sure we don't step on the law. That we block off the grace that we have and the freedom that we have in Christ. And then there's a class four legalist that I think most of us are going to find ourselves in. I know when I read it, I was like, yeah, I can see myself being this way. This is a longer quote, so pay attention. Class 4 legalists avoid these gross errors, meaning the error of class 1, class 2, and class 3. But they so accentuate obedience to the law of God that other ideas shrivel up. The reason, or they reason, God has redeemed us at the cost of his son's life. Now he demands our service in return. He has given us his spirit and a new nature and has stated his will. With these resources, we obey his law in gratitude for our redemption. This is our duty to God. And in an important way, this is true. But class four legalists dwell in the law of God until they forget the love of God. They forget worshiping, delighting in, communing with, and conforming to God. So think about this. In your relationships with your kids, in your relationships with your spouse, in your relationships with your parents and your grandparents, do you ever just enjoy being with them? Not demonstrating your love to them by acts of service, not demonstrating your love to them by getting them things or giving them things or taking them somewhere or doing something for the other person. Not in that, but do you ever just like being in the presence of your beloved, of the beloved. God's the same way. He wants us to be still and know that he is God. Be still and know that I am God. This is the difference between doing and being. I've been pressed by someone that I've been meeting with to make more space in my life to just be with God. I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a student, I'm a part-time pastor, I own a business. There's not a whole lot of time left. <laughs> but I was challenged that our life is like a fire. The, Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into us and he starts a fire in us. If you take wood and throw it 
just throw it on a fire, what happens? It goes out. Because you smother it. In the same way, our Christian life is like that. If we have this fire within us, if the Holy Spirit is within us, and all we do is say, I gotta do, 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 and you cram everything on top of your spiritual life, when are you finding time to rest in God? I was told I need to more stack my fire, my life, the way we stack a fire, and give space for air in the fire to move through, to give space in your life for the Holy Spirit to work in your life. That is the being with God, the reading His Word, the sitting and praying with Him, the just being in His presence. Good works are a part of our salvation. Don't hear me say that, that you can just live life however you want to do, however you want. That's not what I'm saying at all. And if you hear me saying that, please stop me afterwards and we can have a conversation. I'm not saying that you can just continue to live life and there won't be any fruit in your life as a Christian. But what I am saying is the same thing that Kevin DeYoung says, good works are the fruit of your, of your salvation. They are not the root of your salvation. I've got three other false gospels that I want to look at. Because this is what Paul says that they're turning from. See, Paul says that we're deserting Christ who called us in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. They want to distort it. So I'm not sure that the false teachers were blatantly saying, no, you don't have to believe in Christ. It's a distortion. They're saying you have to believe in Christ and. So it was a Christ plus gospel. But I think we in our day and age can distort the gospel in different ways. I'm going to read three counterfeit gospels that I ran across from um, counterfeit gospels, rediscovering the good news in the world of false hope by Trevor Wax. The first counterfeit gospel that we run across is called the therapeutic gospel. This is the gospel that says our sinfulness is really only about the individual sins that we commit. It is about, sin is primarily about us, and it robs us of our sense of fullness. The announcement of this gospel is that Christ's death proves our inherent worth as human beings and gives us the power to reach our potential. The church, then, helps us in our quest for personal happiness and vocational What's missing in that gospel? Substitutionary penal atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement. Same thing both ways. The heart of the gospel is missing from there. Sin is just a something that holds us back. There's no talk about God in our sin. There's no talk about how we have sinned against a holy God. It's just, well, it's something that holds you back a little bit. You kind of need to overcome it. The judgmentless gospel is restoration is more about God's goodness than his judgment of evil or his response to a rebellious humanity. So there it is again. It's that downplaying of our sin. Jesus' death is more about defeating humanity's enemies such as death, sin, and Satan than it is for the need for God's wrath to be averted by his sacrifice. 
and the community, then the church, the boundaries between the church and the world are blurred in a way that makes personal evangelism less urgent and unnecessary. This is a sin-less gospel. Sin's not really a problem in the judgmentless gospel. There's no urgency in evangelism because we don't believe in this gospel that people are actually headed to a literal place called hell where they will spend an eternity in conscious torment. That's the judgmentless gospel. Then there's a moralistic gospel. Our sinful condition is seen as an individual sins we commit and redemption comes through the exercise of willpower with God's help. The good news is the spiritual instruction about what we can do to win God's favor and blessing upon our earthly endeavors. And the church is a place where people who believe like us affirm each other in keeping the standards of the community. I want you to hear that first part. It, our sinful condition is seen as the individual sins we commit. And I have an asterisk here. We aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're born sinners. And without Christ working in us and converting us and giving us the new nature, we are still sinners. That's the fundamental issue in humanity. I said this the last time I preached when Paul preached his gospel in verse 3, 4, and 5. Christ died for our sins because that's the problem. He died to release us from our sinful nature, from the hold that sin has on us. Every single one of those counterfeit Gospels that I just read off, the four forms of legalism, the therapeutic Gospel, the judgmentless Gospel, and the moralistic Gospel, are counterfeit Gospels. They're not the Gospel of Christ. And they need to be rejected. Jesus says in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. You're not able to find your way to God because there is only one way. You can't find a way around Christ to get to God because there is no way around Christ to get to God. And a lot of people have a problem with the exclusivity of Christ. I think we need to be more amazed that there is a way than there is just one way. Scripture teaches that God doesn't owe us anything. Romans 11.35 says, Who has given a gift to him, being God, that he might be repaid? We've done nothing to get salvation from God. He has graciously extended Christ to us. Christ graciously and willfully went to the cross that there's a way is more astounding to me than it's the only way. Moving on then, what does Paul say about anyone who teaches or preaches a gospel other than Jesus Christ? He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you have received, let him be accursed. 
I think sometimes we can see this morning and view it for the guys that get up here. For the people that stand in front of you and teach and the people that stand in front of you and preach, I think if we do that, we're not wrong, but I believe it's a narrow view of what Paul is saying in this message, in this, in this verse. Listen to what he says. If we or an angel from heaven or anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Preaching, I think, in our day and age has become this. This is me preaching. But preaching is more than just this. The word rendered there preaching is euangelizo, which means to proclaim good news. That's all it means. I'm proclaiming good news to you. I hope. I'm proclaiming good news to you that Christ is the only way for salvation. And that believing any one of those four or six counterfeit gospels does not lead you to salvation. It leads you to condemnation. I hope you hear that as good news. If not, please see me afterwards. But anytime you take the message of the gospel to someone, you're preaching them. You are proclaiming good news to them. So don't think that just because you don't get up here or you don't stand in front of a Sunday school class or you don't get in front of a group of people, you're not preaching the good news. Anytime you walk up to somebody and say, Christ has died for your sins so you can be reconciled to God. You have just proclaimed to them good news. So anytime you do anything other than that, anytime your gospel is any short, anything short of Christ died for your sins, you fall into the category of the accursed false teacher in Paul's letter to the Galatians. The word rendered accursed is anathema, to be cut off, to be the object of detestation. Not against Paul. Remember, you're not proclaiming a different message than Paul proclaimed. You're proclaiming a message against Christ. So you're not the object of Paul's detestation. You're the object of God's detestation. Because you are lying to one of his creatures. And you are giving them a false sense of hope and security. So here's my question. Does the gospel that you received line up with the gospel that Paul preaches? Or does it fit into one of the counterfeit gospels that we looked at? Is your gospel, or in your gospel, is the reason that Christ came to die for your sins and reconcile you to God, and to rescue you from this present evil age, which is the gospel that Paul preaches in verse 3 and 4 and 5. So verse 8, the one that we preached to you links back to verses 3, 4, and 5. So if you're in your Bibles and you see that, when you see Paul saying a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, It's grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of the Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. That's the gospel Paul preached. If your gospel is contrary to that one, if you proclaim a gospel contrary to that one, Scripture says you're anathema. 
You're cursed. Don't downplay the sinfulness of sin in an effort not to offend the person you're talking to. For the sake of your own soul and for the sake of the people you're sharing with, do not diminish the guilt that people are under before a holy God. You are not doing them a favor. In his book, Christianity and Liberalism, J. Dressed much and has this to say. From the beginning, the Christian gospel, as indeed the name gospel or good news implies, consisted in an account of something that had happened. And from the beginning, the meaning of the account, the meaning of the happening was set forth. So you have an act and the meaning of the act. The happening was set forth, and the meaning of that happening was set forth. Then there was Christian doctrine. Christ died. That's the history. Christ died for your sins. That's the doctrine. Without these two elements joined in an absolutely indissoluble union, there is no Christianity. You separate them, you've severed the gospel of Christ. This is the exact same thing that Paul is saying. If your gospel is a sinless gospel, you don't have a gospel. If your gospel is a Christ plus gospel, Christ plus good works, Christ plus circumcision, Christ plus a long list of do's and don'ts, you don't have a gospel. What you have is a counterfeit. That's not good for you or your hearers. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Paul again to the Corinthians, after talking about teachers and 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believe in me. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in according with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So here's the good news that I proclaim to you. Christ has died for your sins. Tetelestai, it is finished. You have nothing to do but humble yourself at the foot of the cross and say, Christ my faith is in you. I can't earn it. I can't do anything to retain it. I am trusting in your finished work on the cross. Anything other than that is not a gospel. Christ has died for our sins. He has fully satisfied the wrath of God on my behalf. He has fully satisfied the wrath of God on your behalf. Are you resting in that? Or are you believing one of the counterfeit gospels? My prayer is that you rest in Christ. And if not, if as we were going through those counterfeit gospels, the Lord's been tugging at your heart and saying, this is where you're at. You're believing some of this. You're believing this lie. Don't brush it off. John says in 1 John 1 that if we confess our sins, the sin of believing in a different gospel, the sin of trusting in yourself and not trusting in Christ, that he, being God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
So don't think that that disqualifies you. I said before, I find myself in legalist class number four more times than I'd like to admit. That is something that I need to repent of. That is something that I need to confess. That is something that I just confessed. That's where I find myself most days. Confess the sin of unbelief, repent, and God will forgive you. And he will, as he has promised, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you sent Jesus Christ to the cross to die for my sins.